Hi everyone, my name is Dr Pete Finn and I am a lecturer in politics at the Kingston University in the Department of Politics and this is the COVID-19 and Democracy podcast. On the podcast this week we are discussing um, or returning to a topic that we have looked at in various different ways on the podcast and in the broader project that the podcast sits within over the last year and a half, which is leadership and how we can analyse, how we can think about, how we can conceptualise um, different types of leadership. Um, and we are going to be talking about it uh, mostly with relation to Europe and um, countries like the UK, um, the Netherlands, but I certainly imagine our discussions may well at certain points go beyond that. Um, to discuss that with me today on the podcast, I'm particularly lucky to be joined by two very eminent scholars. Uh, we've got Arian Boyne, who is a professor of public institution government over at the University of Leiden in the Netherlands, and also um, Martin Lodge, who is a professor of political science and public policy in the Department of Government and is also a co-director of the Centre of Analysis, uh, Centre for the Analysis of Risk and Regulation, um, which goes under the acronym CAR, C-A-R-R, and both of those are at the LSE um, in London. Um, and they are the co-authors of a post on one of the LSE sites called Principled or Pragmatic, the two approaches leaders can take during a drawn-out crisis, and also the authors of an article, which quite frankly I can't recommend highly enough, um, which is in the Journal of European Public Policy, and the article is titled Responding to the COVID-19 Crisis, a Principled or Pragmatist Approach. And I'll put links to both of those in the show notes for any listeners who want to look it up. So welcome to the podcast, Arian and Martin. Hi, Pete. Yeah. Hi, um, yeah, thanks for coming on. Um, so starting uh, with you, Arian, um, do you... And before we turn to kind of recent events in the pandemic, what are some ideal types of crises that can be faced by governments? Well, we can think of uh, you know a variety of um, crises in terms of you know financial crises or terrorism or or, or fire or a pandemic. But um, if if you want to think about the challenges for leaders, it's, it's more useful to think of the uh, characteristics of these events. So. For instance, the time dimension. Is this a crisis that emerges very slowly or is it all of a sudden on your radar? Is it, you know, does it explode into view? Is it over quickly or does it last a long time? So the time dimension is very interesting. Um, another dimension, is, is this a known event? Have you seen it before or is this an unknown, unknown, so to speak? Is this something that, um, you know, you have no idea where you, you, you don't even understand what you're looking at. Um, and I think the crucial variable that uh, is important in, in what we're doing is uncertainty. So, you know, how, how soon um, can leaders get a grip on, uh, on, this, on understanding the situation? And uncertainty is always there in the beginning, and uh, it's a bit of a, uh, a challenge to uh, get a grip on that. So those are, I think that is a better way of, trying to categorize crisis than the labeling that we so often see. Okay, great. Um, that's really interesting and useful as an introduction. And what does, so 
I guess thinking about that, and I thought they the kind of known unknowns one. I don't know if the label is that is that the Rumsfeldian uh, exactly. <laughs> a Rumsfeldian crisis. Um, what does the literature suggest as some different models for leaders and policymakers who have to respond to such crises? Well, to begin with, if you have a known event, you usually one would expect and one would hope you have some sort of prepared and planned response. And um, which, of course, is a lot harder for unknown events. And because then at best you have sort of capacities or, or processes in order that you may apply to the situation that emerges into view. Um, so that is what the literature makes a big difference about that. So, you know, you have planned events, you know, emerging kind of from risk management, knowable, you know, professionals are trained, they've done it before, and then you have these. Um, unknowable events where you don't even know who the professional is or, or whether there is a professional and, and we'll get to COVID because COVID is interesting because it's on the one hand a known event and on the other hand an unknown event so it's, it's kind of in the, in the middle there um, and, then, and then the other model that's what we're going to talk about I guess is the how leaders then deal with uncertainty and the types of approaches that um, you can recognize there I mean, I think it's worthwhile also just briefly mentioning um, where I think the literature has been silent, um, I would say, and that is um, the sort of, let's call it the, the uncertainty around the moment where risk moves to the crisis world. So at what point do organizations move to a state of greater alertness without ending up in the crisis room, so to speak, and how do they maintain attention to this? Uh, I and I have once called this the twilight zone in a sort of a Wagnerian kind of, uh, uh, you know, kind of way, but, um, but I think um, this is something where the literature has not paid much attention to, because the literature has been traditionally in the risk management world, so, you know, sort of I defined it, sort of dealing with sort of some degree of knowledge, um, ideas about sort of what might turn amber, what might turn red, but, you know, sort of broadly things are okay. And then we've got crisis management. The literature has so far uh, not yet dealt with this sort of zone in between, which is, I think, particularly challenging both for leaders, because they don't want to be told that things might happen, which might not happen, um, but also for organizations themselves that they keep maintaining attention to these issues where leaders don't yet want to hear about it, but should know about it. Oh, okay. That's really interesting. And so, so just thinking in a UK context, would that be kind of, so for instance, any, like anyone who studies UK politics or follows the media would know that when something reaches kind of crisis level in the UK, you get to COBRA, right? You hear, you know, there was a COBRA meeting on X or Y. Um, but your, the work of you and I suggests that before the kind of, there's a space between normality and where it reaches that cobra level where there's not been much attention is that what you're is that what you were yes. saying yes exactly so and, and i mean another kind of sideline would be why is it that in the, in the contemporary age we have to be told that there's a cobra meeting and uh, 20 or 30 years ago having a cobra meeting was kept secret because that you know people thought people would be frightened at that point right so so that a crisis room becomes a reassuring symbol rather than a frightening symbol is, is also something but but yes so um, I mean, another example would be, for example, you know, let's take a bank failure or something, you know, kind of there is an issue about if a bank fails, there are certain institutions in place, crisis management, but there might be financial institutions, that, you know, let's say, look wobbly, uh, but have not, might not fail or 
you know, might not fail or will possibly fail in the future. So you have to basically put in extra measures uh, of attention uh, b before the crisis sets in, uh, which goes beyond what you might call the normal supervision of a financial institution. Right, and that is basically exactly so. So it can happen. You know, we could look at collapsing airlines, uh, but we might sort of also talk in the broader sort of civil contingency sense about uh, you know the rooms before cobra, basically. Yeah. Oh, okay. All right. And so that actually brings me quite neatly onto sort of the next question I was going to ask. Really, was um, and when you were talking, I mean, in pretty much everyone's minds, I presume now, when we talk about financial crisis, right, the first our first things to go back to 2008 and the collapse of Lehman Brothers and all the credit crunch or whichever label or particular event you pick but obviously prior to that I mean there's there's lots we can talk about going back in history or um, kind of in the post-cold war era thinking about the dot-com boom and bust um, and everything that that fed into and then the kind of the the Asian financial crisis of like 1990s um, but are there so guess there's some classic crises, but are there other kind of classic crises that are explored in the literature and what kind of insights are drawn from them? Um, Ian, do you want to take that? Well, the, 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 I mean, obviously many, many crises have been explored, but the classic ones would be, for instance, you know, Ellison's uh, Cuban Missile Crisis book. Um, that is, that is um, one of the first... Um, international crisis that was viewed from a crisis perspective as well there were other perspectives but uh, viewed as a crisis political decision making in times of crisis and that brought the leadership perspective right on board and um but other other um very interesting cases would be the challenger um explosion the space shuttle there's a lot of research went into that, and that was more of sort of a large organization like NASA. And this is about information, you know, how does information travel, and why do you miss events, why do you miss obvious warning signals. And again, leadership uh, was important there because this is more organizational leadership. You know, why do they prioritize in terms of risk-taking, so that the possibility that something might go wrong versus, you know, keeping with the schedules. Um, so that was interesting, and then the, the 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 mother of all crises in the literature will be 9/11, which has produced an endless amount of studies. And then you know after that has been a series. Okay, you can go on a hurricane. Katrina was was a was another uh, disaster that that um, produced you know many 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 books. Um, again, leadership. You know George Bush comes to mind there. And, um, you know, we, the, you mentioned the financial crisis, many books there, all leaders. So leadership has been a constant uh, in these cases. Um, but I think it's over time, it's also become more important. Okay. Traditionally, one can sort of look at, you know, I think sort of, one can sort of say the studies of military incompetence and intelligent failures, right, which is sort of the Allison world. And then you've got a strain which looks at, the, let's call it the public administration's organization of, uh, you know, something has gone wrong, which is sort of the space shuttles and, and, and mining disasters, I think, come to mind, uh, tsunamis and so on. I think sort of where sort of Ian has been sort of leading the, leading the, the crisis management literature, sort of bringing these sort of domains which are 
sometimes sort of more in organizational studies and others sort of in international relations, military sort of intelligence studies, bringing these together. Um, and I think sort of the treatment of leadership and the treatment of organization still varies to some extent between these different fields of um, attention, I would say. Okay, how very, how very interesting. Um, so turning to the sort of more kind of contemporary events, although quite weirdly, we're now over a year and a half in, into the current crisis, so who get can look back with some clarity, perhaps maybe at least on the early stages now. Um, what type of crisis is the COVID-19 pandemic? Or, or is it better to think about crises? I mean, uh, is it just too big to think of it as a single crisis? Um, Martin, do you want to start? Well, I think, um, okay, so, so I can clearly contradict it, so we can have a fight here possibly, but uh, I mean, I think basically the, uh, you know, I, well, I think there are many labels you could put uh, uh, on, on the COVID, right? I mean, to some extent, you clearly can say it's a transboundary crisis in every respect you want, right? It's cross-jurisdictional, it's cross-disciplinary, it's across social systems. So, so in that sense, uh, you know, kind of the concept transboundary works here. Uh, there are um, elements of sort of, uh, you know, um, you know, of a crisis dimension here about sort of a crisis signal is received, and then basically how do you know, kind of various jurisdictions move, uh, get prepared, which is sort of particular of attention to what people like to call creeping crisis or things sort of moving slowly and then sort of hit a certain threshold point and then sort of become acute. Uh, there's also, I guess, the COVID point is sort of the protracted crisis. And I think that's sort of where I think COVID-19 is very interesting because, um, you know, what some people argue is if you permanently live in a crisis, it becomes normal. So, you know, if I live in a country where there are normal blackouts, uh, you know, it becomes part of my normal management sort of to deal with electricity shortages. And I think sort of where the, uh, well, let's call it the interesting conception of COVID in my view is that um, new crisis, so, so it's not always the same. Uh, mutations emerge, we have sort of different views about indicators, um, uh, um, kind of different sort of um, so scientific knowledge emerges and so on. So in that sense, this evolving protracted nature of it, I think is, um, uh, makes it a particularly interesting one. But also I think the, that might sort of sound sad, but you know, a global kind of dimension to it. Because if one looks at previous public health ones, I mean, Ebola, Ebola would be sort of another one people have liked to study in the public health domain, but very little you know, in other areas. So again, sort of, I think the global dimension of this is quite an interesting one. But Arjen, I leave you to correct me. Um, in, in well, I'm, I'm certainly not going to correct you, but uh, because I agree with all of this, uh, I would just say that some, some uh, crisis scholars like to talk about confounded crisis. And that's really, you know, it's all the mix kind of thing. There's so much going on here. Um, so it's, it's not a, it's, it's really one of the hardest crises you can imagine because of all, all these dimensions. And, um, uh, and maybe one of the uh, characteristics that I find particularly uh, challenging for um, leaders is the, the deepening uncertainty. So normally speaking in a crisis, um, uncertainty kind of gets resolved. I mean, you learn more about the crisis as you, you know, just even if you stumble into um, certainty, but you, you find out what the, what the deal is and, uh, and what should have been done at least. But this is the crisis that keeps on morphing and changing and producing new uncertainties. So just when you think you know what you're doing, you know, we have a new variant and that requires a different approach. We have, you know, vaccinations in the mix. We have a new, you know, 
the public reacts differently. So the so the crisis keeps changing. It's not the same crisis, and I think that makes it really really hard for leaders, and also sets them up for you know hanging on to um, an approach that may have worked three months ago. Um, but and and so you want to repeat it again, but it's just not working anymore to, to their surprise. Yeah, sure. I mean, I, when you were talking now, I was thinking about the idea of, a, and this is in your article as well, the idea of a, a, a wicked problem, right? A wicked policy problem that's ever-evolving. It's hard to grasp onto. Um, it's genuinely quite expensive to respond to. There's no single agreed answer to it. Um, and so um, policymakers and politicians and kind of public health leaders are constantly trying to switch their approach. Um so yeah, that was I was think reflecting on that while you were talking. Um, so turning to kind of leadership within this, and I guess responding to this uh, kind of wicked, wicked problem. How have um, Martin? How have different leaders attempted to deal with this crisis? I mean, using you know, this sort of ideal type distinction, uh, which we use in the blog and in the article. I think you can sort of. Um, you know, you can sort of see the sort of initial response, which you might say European experts and politicians sort of laughed at, which was sort of a lockdown, and everyone was sort of looking with amazement that sort of an authoritarian government could do that sort of thing. Um, and then I think we can sort of look at uh, in the European context between um, those countries that basically you might say um, went for lockdown well, early, if you want to sort of look at this, uh, you know, basically sort of try to create the conditions to learn again. And then you've got sort of, let's say, the UK government, which you might say came late to the table after making sort of initial principle statements about, um, you know, this is the country of freedom and, and all that sort of thing. Um, and then um, uh, and we've got sort of the Swedish example where um, you might say the governance system there basically put it on a path of a particular type of um, COVID response here. So, so I think one can sort of look um, look across the piece. But I think what is also interesting then is to see, you know, across what people like to call the different waves, how uh, countries might or might not have adjusted uh, in, in that sense. So I think uh, when, when the future books are written or when Ian updates his latest book uh, on COVID, I think, uh, you know, I, I would be, I would expect a table to emerge about sort of to what extent have country responses varied uh, um, in view of sort of rising patterns or, you know, basically as they're all stuck in the same old templates. Sure. Okay. And um, Ian, how... So in your in your work in in the article and in the the LSE post, you um, guys use kind of principled versus pragmatic heuristic to explore some you know kind of two two ideal types of the spectrum. Um, and how how what insights can we draw from that um, in terms of of the work that you've been able to do so far? Given the, you know the huge caveat that it's all a bit foggy at the moment. <laughs> Our idea was to see if we could, uh, because there's such a variance in approaches. And if you look at the, the leaders, is I think I think the core challenge is, um, what do you do with uncertainty? And um, you know, the the response the would be logically speaking, you would want to wait it out. You, say, you, know, you, you don't know today, so let's wait till tomorrow. Let's wait till we get more information. And uh, that obviously was not possible. I mean, uh, even if you thought it was possible, you would soon enough learn that it is not possible. And then, then you know, then this is always a core challenge and that's a sort of a 
dramatic dimension to it. If you don't know what you can do, or you don't even know what's going on, but you have to act. How do you deal with that? And um, so that's what we're talking about. So we're not talking about you know whether this is a good response or that was a good response. We're just essentially interested in the leadership reflex, and um, and and then drawing from the literature, we recognize there's two very rough. And then in our work, we saw that it's just not as black and white as as we you know thought it was in the beginning. But but it's a good starting point. So you could say, well, you know, I don't know, I have no idea, but I do know that I have a principle. So. Uh, if, if I'm going to err on this side or that side, I'm going to make sure that I always, I'm going to err on my principle, you know, to, or I'm not going to err on my principle. So if I think that, you know, the health of people is, is of paramount importance, then, then and, and any sort of approach that uh, promises to do that, um, I'm going to just do that. And, and uh, so look at New Zealand, for instance, that they're just doing it this week, you know, one yeah, one case and they've gone into lockdown. One case and there we go. And, and uh, so that's your principle. You're just not gonna renege on it. The other and the, this is easy to understand. You know, it's heroic. It's it's um, you know if everybody agrees with the principle, this is what we do. And obviously implied in it is we're gonna take losses because you know this is a principle. So you know you you're not you're not um, negotiating. This or that, you just you you follow the principle. Now the other side of it is um, the pragmatic approach. This is not pragmatic with a small p, so to speak, but one of the the this is referring to a school of philosophers in the U.S. who, who created this idea explicitly because they did not like the whole idea of acting upon principles because they thought I was kind of dumb and would lead you down into an alley where. You're just going to, you know, this is never going to end up well. And they said, you know, it's better to experiment your way into a certain degree of knowledge, of understanding. So what you do is kind of like what social scientists do. You create a hypothesis. This is what you would expect. You do it. You look at the feedback. If it works, you continue down that road. If it doesn't work, you just throw it away, try something else, like throwing spaghetti against the wall and see if it sticks. If it doesn't, you know, it's got to cook a little longer or not. And um, so, so kind of rules of thumb, there's nothing, you know, the principles underneath are essentially that you don't have a principle and, um, and that, that feedback is important. So those are two approaches, but they're very, you know, what we're trying to do is see if they work in terms of analysis and, Soon enough, then, of course, you see, you know, this is obviously not how leaders, they don't sit around the table saying, you know, I'm very principled, I'm not a pragmatic. Uh, this is an analytical way of trying to sort leadership approaches. Sure. Okay. Um, and, Martin, what can we, so with that in mind and the idea that, you know, it, it's true, I, I suppose most leaders don't sit around going, oh, am I a pragmatist or am I am I principled or you know they, uh, that, they leave, leave that to uh, academics like ourselves to a certain extent but um, what can we learn by kind of ad adopting this rubric or some kind of taking that to our analysis of particular leaders? I mean I think you can sort of look at look, look at it from two ways I mean one is um, what I thought was sort of when you know 
sort of I and I were sort of struggling to make sense of our various sort of um, responses to to that heuristic uh, device and, and so on. Um, uh, I think sort of for me in particular, I think the, the administrative capacities required for these different systems became more and more prominent. I think that's sort of uh, um, again sort of where. Um, I think so. The, what do you need? And that is sort of Ian has already noted this: the importance of feedback processes, right? So, do you know what the information is? Can you process it? Do you even agree on the indicators? Can you analyze it? And can you respond in time? And uh, you know, you might argue, you know, is a pandemic with exponential growth rates and so on a good place for for that? You know, what indicators do you use? And I find it quite interesting how different countries are preoccupied by rather different numbers, for example, right? So, uh, but I think that is an, an interesting kind of um, point, uh, which I think sort of invites comparison um, in, in one hand. Sort of if we sort of talk about leaders too, I think, you know, at least uh, you might argue sort of it points to sort of, um, you know, we could sort of focus on political speeches and so on and sort of the pre-commitments that certain uh, politicians take in terms of raising a certain kind of uh, responses or, you know, and, and such like. And it sort of highlights the political prerequisites for these different kind of approaches. So, uh, you know, I sort of iron highlighted a principled approach might sound very, you know, kind of um, Churchillian in that sense, but um, it, it, you know, it, it raises big issues about um, your U-turn ability uh, in that sense. And, you know, as sort of the, the blog you sort of pointed out, sort of highlighted, um, you know, the UK went into Freedom Day um, in a very principled sort of language way, although, you know, then you could sort of see sort of uh, some degree of modifications underneath that, um, 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 versus, um, you know, just at the time when the Dutch and also the Israeli case were highlighting basically, you know, um, sort of certain kind of consequences of, um, uh, you know, of sort of, let's call it Freedom Day uh, in those jurisdictions. So, so I think, um, um, so both, so this comparison of sort of different jurisdictions enables, enables us to look very carefully at the administrative and the, let's call it the political leadership components and the prerequisites that are required and possibly the, the limits um, or the, the challenges of these different approaches. And I think that sort of crystallizes, um, you know, it comes out nicely in a cross-national comparison. Sure. And just, I was thinking about when, uh, when you, you um, pointed to the example of New Zealand and the single case, and then thinking about the difference in kind between, so there's a single, oh, it, sorry, it was Arian, like yourself, Martin, who was pointing to that, but the, they've got, they've identified a single case of the Delta variant gone into a week long lockdown, whereas in the UK, we have, um, like we the last time I looked, it's just above 30,000 per day, it was a seven day average of cases. So kind of talking you know over 200,000 cases on average per week um and and it's sort of you know I mean I live in the UK <laughs> uh, as as as, a, uh, as as you do and it's a very different um quite, quite relaxed approach to that certainly um in many quarters despite some pushback in certain instances such as there's been some criticism of MPs in the House of Commons for not wearing masks in the debate on Afghanistan for instance um okay uh, so, um, the thing I'm interested in is, I suppose this goes to, speaks to kind of a classic distinction within the social sciences, which is this idea of, um, like the individual versus the structure, or structure versus agency, um, and so, what, I mean, where does your work, how does your work speak to that, the, you know, the, like, should we be thinking about? leaders should we think about structure or is it some combination of the two or it depends on what exactly you're trying to understand well i think it prompts some questions um that you know our approach is really on a leadership level and um so we're ignoring 
that there's all advisory uh, consolation and this and that and the other. But you, you could, um, for instance, you know, if you look at the UK or you look at Sweden or Holland, they're pretty interesting cases. So in the UK, you would ask, uh, what kind of system allows a leader to just cynically um, trade in one principle for the other overnight? And uh, which is so so it's a we see all principles, but they're not always the same principles. So, so what, what does that even mean? Is that still principle, or is it, you know, can you be principally unprincipled? Uh, I have no idea. This is interesting. Now, the if you look at the Swedes, though, they were um, incredibly principled in a way. You know, it's, it's, so we're gonna uh, in a way we're gonna so science is everything, and um, so. This is the, the the high trust society, but is it um, what is what does that say about you know a, a system where politics has sort of removed itself from the scene, leaving decisions to uh, uh, a virologist or epidemiologist? I mean, this is really I mean maybe 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 the the, the principle or unprincipled whatever. Then we have the touch, and uh, that that sort of looks from a distance as a pragmatic approach. Kind of a zigzag approach, but then when you start really digging into it, you, you find you do find a principle. It's uh, the principles like you know we don't want our we don't want our IC units to be overflowing, and that's that's then really it. Um, so what kind of principle is that? Um, and you and then so this whole pragmatist principle um, approach helps you start a discussion. It certainly doesn't answer. Uh, but, it, but it shifts the perspective. I think it's a little richer than just saying leadership versus structure um, because it helps you ask different questions. And um, for me, that's, that, that's, that's very fruitful. And uh, I don't know how Martin looks at that, but, but um, I think yeah. you don't have to be stuck in the structure versus agency sure, to indeed. take the leadership perspective, I think. And then, you know, I think I, I know we, we like that as sort of social scientist and then all that sort of thing, right? But I think, um, you know, um, you could always end up in the blended version, you know, as all, you know, kind of, as we all do in, in, a, in a certain way, right? So, I mean, ultimately, we're talking here about the conditions of constraint leadership and we are interested in what, I mean, you know, in the comparative analysis, you might say, what is it what constraints leadership in particular ways? And, uh, I mean, you know, you could argue in the UK, uh, in the in the Swedish case, uh, you know, there are certain kind of structural conditions. Uh, um, but at the same time, I think what a sort of compounded or protracted crisis might sort of offer us is sort of at what point do system, you know, things that we think are structural, so embedded or you know stuck or whatever you want to call it, uh, at what point do they get softened up? I mean, you know, guys, this is possibly not, you know, you know, I haven't sort of thought about it that much in the COVID case, but in other cases too, I mean, one might argue, when we looked at sort of acute crisis in, in my life, um, you know, in a way, and not my personal life, in my research life, uh, we found that structures actually mattered less, uh, you know, kind of than one would have expected. So under these conditions of crisis, uh, the acuteness of it, um, as these structures sort of... Um, um, stand back, uh, you might say, and there's more space for discretion than what we would expect as institutionalists under humdrum sort of policy making, risk management sort of moments. Okay, all right, and just um, another question, which I mean, forgive me, I'm a total elections nerd, so <laughs> I just wondered, um, you know, so within Europe and around the world, right, there's a rolling sort of schedule of elections. I mean, it, next month in 
Um, Germany, for instance, have got federal elections to replace Angela Merkel, who's been the kind of not necessarily the only important person in German politics, right? That would be taking it too far, but certainly the dominant figure in German politics for the last kind of 16 years or so. Um, in a year and a bit, there'll be the US midterms. We had election local and um, national elections in lots of parts of the UK back in May. Um, I just wondered, in out of your work, do you have any kind of tentative idea of how elections and electoral or partisan considerations might feed into how we could think about um, think about reactions to crises? I mean, I, I think you know, this is a big question uh, to some extent, right? I mean, clearly, um, you know, you could look back to conservatives in the early 90s lost their, uh, their reputation for competence in economic matters after Black Wednesday, if anyone listening to this podcast remembers this, right? But, uh, you know, you could say, um, you know, crises can lead to the loss of reputation for competence. Uh, now, um, I think, you know, initially people have said COVID is the hour of the executive and all that sort of thing. Um, um, but um, at the same time, um, um, I think the effectiveness of management, I think, will become a critical dimension. I think sort of more the economic aftermath, you might say, which is sort of ongoing, uh, I think that would possibly be more important for the electoral consideration. I mean, the German case too, right? I mean, we've got now, we haven't got only just COVID, we've got basically flood catastrophes, uh, you know, kind of where crisis management by one of the, the Christian Democrat chancellor as a prime minister of the one affected state uh, is involved. And you might even say uh, what is currently sort of on the election menu, but it's sort of summer, is basically even sort of, um, you know, using the Afga Afghanistan you know, kind of disaster, you might say, um, to basically reflect back on a previous crisis that people have talked about, namely the refugee crisis of 2015, and sort of use that, you might say, for partisan reaffirming sort of more on the right sort of uh, ways of discussing things. So so in, in a way, you know, kind of how COVID will sort of play out and the sort of effective management of COVID, that will sort of really sort of um, uh, depend how also this sort of links with sort of more acute events um, at the time, I would say. But um, I am, uh, I mean, you still have coalition politics going on in the Netherlands. So, uh, you know, does, um, you know, how does it feature? Uh, let me just make a general point building on what Martin was saying is that I'm wondering, and I don't know how it's going to play out, whether the reaction to COVID uh, in a way is a test of how a democracy deals with uh, a crisis that demands an imposition of a regime that just curtails the, uh, the freedom of movement of people. And, um, you know, so that's in the short run and for a short while, I think many people might accept that. Um, in the long run, you know, th there's a legitimacy issue here, and uh, so so this brings us to the question whether democracies are fit to deal with these kind of um, episodes, long-lasting crises that kill people uh, indiscriminately, and. Um, even though many people think that you know they don't they don't they're not part of that regime because they, you know we're, I'm vaccinated I'm healthy whatever, so this is creating um, uh, a, a re, uh, in my mind I, I can only imagine it's going to be a legitimacy problem, and um, on the other hand we had elections here in March, and uh, our our uh, fumbling prime minister came out winning so you know. Um, 
So, yeah, who says so? We have the legitimacy of the leaders versus the legitimacy of the whole idea of a democratic um, structure or, or uh, entity and, and the mechanisms of organizing power, centralizing power in times of crisis. And uh, that, that may well become an issue, certainly with climate change on the horizon. And, um, and I, I have no idea how that's going to play out. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I'm actually, so I'm working on a paper at the moment, actually. It's, it's focused on the effect of um, uh, COVID. It's looking at COVID-19 and some funding that came from central government in the UK to change roads in in parts of London to uh, kind of aid bike lanes and reduce traffic and looking at the politics around that and kind of an early draft of it, like one of my core arguments actually is that a lot of the politics around such things relating to COVID, they, they I think, prefigure the debates that we're going to have around climate change. Um, it's slightly underdeveloped as yet, but like that's kind of my broad thinking. That should be interesting, yes. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. I hope so. <laughs> um, okay, and so just to wrap up, um, and you can take this either with relation to kind of thinking analytically about leadership, or maybe what leaders should aim for. Um, it's entirely up to you, or both. Um, is it is it best to think about kind of being some mixture of the two, depending on what's required, or us thinking as academics about leaders adopting different parts of this heuristic as and when so uh, kind of is it, is it best to be pragmatic or I guess principally pragmatic about whether or not to be principled or pragmatic if that that makes any sense and um, I guess we can start with Martin and then if, if Ian's got any thoughts to add we can finish there. <laughs> well I you know I think sort of starting from Ian's work one would say um, a pragmatic approach is more likely to Know, lead to some degree of resolution in, in, in a way. However, I think COVID has shown us uh, constraints on that kind of element. So I think sort of if we can sort of take, you know, so so I would argue, you know, kind of in many ways, um, if you think about crisis management and, and all that, I think it's about maintaining or creating capacities and sometimes having to take restrictive or, you know, action that might look principled in order to return to conditions under which you can be pragmatic in the sense of enabling learning and, and such like. And I think that would be sort of, for me, uh, the kind of the key case. I think sort of the, you know, the, the other issue which we can sort of discuss, um, you know, or maybe that's for, for another paper iron which we should think about is, you know, kind of to what extent, you know, is principled, you know, which we could sort of point to the financial crisis, you know, if Mervyn King just talks about moral hazard all the time, you know, therefore other options are taken, right? That would be for me sort of the key example of a principled approach. So so in ways, you might argue there's sort of principled about sort of, um, we want to prefer public health over the, you know, economy for a certain while. That's sort of one approach. But um, the other kind of principled approach is here's the recipe because every, every problem is a moral hazard problem because I'm an economist. I think that basically is sort of the problem uh, here. So in that sense, I think the, the limits of a principled approach about what is it about, you know, kind of what is, let's call it, you know, unhelpful about a principled approach, bringing that one out while at the same time being attentive to what do I need to be really pragmatic? Uh, can I really do it? Do I really probe into sort of the systemic requirements for systems to respond in a way that I think I have sort of central levers and so on? 
I think these are sort of the elements. So, so you might say it's sort of uh, being cautiously pragmatic. Uh, you know, um, I think sort of central to the, um, you know, to to crisis management. I would say. Okay, and Ian, did you have anything to add? No, I I can live with that. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, in that case, um, we will leave it there. Um, thanks very much, both of you, for coming on. It was fantastically interesting to speak to you. And uh, we look forward to you writing that next paper. And uh, we'll have you back on again when, when it's published. <laughs> so thank you very much. Thanks for having us.